welcome to another episode of Idiopod. My name is Shane Glover. I am TJ Stone. And uh, today we got the opportunity to sit down with a, a real good friend of ours. I've known Brent for years, uh, Brent McCorkle. Yeah, I, I haven't known him for years. I've known who he was for years, but then he, he kind of went and moved away mm-hmm. to Alabama for a couple of years, worked for a production company out there with the Irwin brothers. And yeah come back and i've kind of known him for about a year year and a half now sure yeah the mccorkles have been a part of journey church for several years in fact uh we didn't get into this in in the in the discussion but uh brent's wife kim was actually the children's pastor Mm -hmm. here at journey uh for for several years back in the the old franklin factory days and uh so known them a long time brent um did some uh, worship leading for journey as well from time to time and uh, is just an excellent musician um but uh probably most that we, we talk about some musicianship early on yeah um most most of the conversation really kind of leaned into some filmmaking i let you and i let you and him kind of go there because i'm not quite <laughs> yeah quite I, I love movies but i don't always have the language for it like you guys did yeah. i was kind of fascinated just i was watching you i guys. was literally like you can't see my finger, but I'm, I'm like a, I'm like an inch away from from going to a Watkins uh, Film School instead of going back when I mm. went back to go into teaching. It was such a it was literally it was a finance thing. Yeah, I mean it was like ten grand more a year right. to do that. So Man. that was really what made the decision. Well, it was fun to sit back for me and watch you and kind of listen to you guys talk talk all things film. Yeah, uh, which was pretty cool. I, I've I've went to the uh, the much less educated uh, sort of Quentin Tarantino film school route of just watching lots of movies and oh, yeah. hearing people talk about them. Sure, sure. Well, I think you're going to enjoy this episode, even if you're not a filmmaker or, or into that kind of thing. It's a uh, uh, really cool story with some really cool um, things that, like we always talk about, idiosyncrasies and synchronicities of, of and, his life that kind of worked out to put him where he is now. And idiosynchronicities. Idiosynchronicities as well yes. here on the Idiopod. There, there's one big one that kind of happens in the episode, and I had to fight with everything within me not to say, and that's an idiosynchronicity. He so, said idiosyncrasy he, at one point. Yeah, I was like, ah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I said, no, it'll, it'll ruin the organicness of that's this right. moment. So I, I don't want to call it out every time Total, I see yeah, it. Exactly. Let the audience figure it out. <laughs> but you guys get it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, Brent is, uh, we talk about this a lot, obviously, he is, um, one of the biggest films he's had so far was, I can only imagine, most likely if you're hearing this, you've probably seen that film. Which he wrote the script to, mm-hmm. he was co-editor on, and he, he said he, he did about a third of the, the music for, so he was heavily involved in lots of areas. Yeah, totally. Um, so... I love this. Brent obviously is is a good friend and uh, just a cool dude. Super natural. I say super natural a lot. And and I then so I he has like, like mystical powers. Yeah, yeah. He um, has laser eyes. Extremely natural. We didn't um, even talk about his laser eyes. You know, we, we didn't we, talk about. We didn't want to shame him with the laser eyes. Yeah. yeah. But um. Anyways, enjoy and. Uh, Keep coming back. Rate, review, subscribe. Uh, check us out on all the socials and enjoy this episode, guys, with Brent McCorkle. Yeah, 
And we're back. San Antonio leads the <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're running down the field or the court or whatever it is. <laughs> oh, man. Thanks so much for coming and talking to us, Brent. Yeah, uh, man. Yeah. It's good to be here. Good to be here in, in a, a lovely, dark children's room really in our is. church on a rainy day in a construction zone. I like to call it vibey. It's got vibes. It's definitely yeah, got a, vibes. There's a vibe in here for sure. I want to know what used to be in that aquarium over no one, there. No one gets to know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they didn't keep it very well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, dude, for real, thanks for being here, man. Appreciate it. I know you're, yeah. you're headed out of town right after this, so thanks yeah, for squeezing man. it in. Totally. So Brent McCorkle is one of our favorite people, as as their, their whole family is. For sure. And... Uh, I know you grew up in Texas. Tell us a little bit about like what what growing up was like for you. Uh, where in Texas? Dallas Fort Worth area. Yeah, little town in between the cities called Arlington. Oh yeah. And uh, there's some controversy there because the Cowboys are there. So mm-hmm. why didn't they change it to the Arlington Cowboys? You know. So, oh. so I'm one of those Texans that have a chip on my shoulder about gotcha. that. <laughs> no, no, it was cool. Um, I'm a pastor's kid. Uh, we moved to Texas when I was 10 for my dad to start his church. And I think the greatest thing he instilled in me was he just had this dream. I mean, it, it was like a dream that I would liken to being shot out of a circus cannon mm-hmm. with no net. Like he just came, you know, he's like, hey, I want to start this church. And we came down and he he went to a local Christian college and pitched his idea of this church. And like, I think about 15 kids agreed to no kidding. to come out and help them and kind of man the stations, if, if you will, like yeah, become yeah. this kind of um, pseudo staff that he couldn't really afford to have. Right. And so I just saw this man in his middle age, get a new dream and say, Hey, this is my dream. Will you guys do this with me? And, um, and it, I think it planted some big seeds in me of just, that's so dreaming cool. big and going for it and even if you fail you went for it as hard as you could and i don't know if that's a known game plan to start a church but <laughs> i've never heard of it and it's pretty cool that does sound pretty cool yeah, yeah. usually use the college kids free free interns Bro, yeah that's brilliant yeah it was it was cool to see him you know to see him do it and and uh you know i never i never wanted to be in the ministry um, I, I never really felt a, like a passion for that, but it was mm-hmm. funny though, because I ended up getting sucked into it just because of the gravitational orbit mm-hmm. of being in the church. And, and honestly, you know, if you look at shows like American Idol or The Voice or whatever, what a common refrain you hear from their upbringing is they grew up in the church and that's where they got yeah. the 10,000 hours that's in so true. Yeah. singing the church. And that happened to me. So, um, you know, I, I really I feel very fortunate to have grown up in a church culture that really embraced music and embraced the arts mm, yeah. and allowed me a place to make massive mistakes and fail on stage, probably repeatedly, you know, every Sunday mm-hmm. or Wednesday night or whatever. But at the same time, I was grinding forward and and learning, uh, you know, cultivating and honing my craft. And sure. Uh, so it was a great environment for me being this little artist type kid that didn't really know he was an artist just liked music and yeah. liked mm-hmm. drama and liked all that stuff but i was given avenues to explore that in my dad's mm. in my dad's church my dad's culture that's you know? awesome yeah it was really it was cool so that happened when you were about 10 years old 
Yeah. Um, funny. The funny story about me is I, I was that kid that hated being made to practice piano. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, oh, I hated. Uh-huh. And I played by ear. But my mom was a classically trained pianist and organist, and she didn't really even know what that was. And, and um, so I would start noodling and playing like the Magnum PI theme or the <laughs> Superman theme. I would pick stuff out on the piano and start trying to play that. And she would come down and reset my practice clock, you know, be like, hey, you can't do that. You got to practice the notes. And, yeah. So even and, as a kid, you were you were fiddling around with the TV and, and film. Type yeah. Stuff. yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I gravitated to. I would pick out themes and scores and try to play them as opposed to practice the sheet music in front of me of course <laughs> but my mom was cool i i again it's 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 odd parenting or, or i guess odd mentorship what i'm pitching here but it worked for me but she let me quit and uh and i think that opened up a place in my heart for hmm. music to actually explode and become a passion because I think if it was like a tiger oh, mom situation where I've yeah. been made like you know I've probably been that kid like you know biting the the piano or whatever those, yeah. you know they, yeah. they say you know those kids that just hate it so much and yeah the moment that that you know they leave the nest they're just done because it's such a drudgery so it felt like that to me at times but mm. but uh something happened to me when I was 11 um I went to school and I went to public school and every once in a while they would have a public assembly and they would bring all the kids to the gym. Mm -hmm. And this particular day there were all these instruments up there and it was like an orchestra type thing. And the orchestra leader from the junior high that we have all been going to came and said, Hey, you know, you have to pick an elective. You have to pick a fine arts. We'd love for you to consider the orchestra and we're going to play, um, some John Williams music. We're going to play some stuff from the movie Superman. Mm. That was speaking your language. And dude, they lit it up. And I'm sure it was just God awful music. I'm sure it was horrible. I mean, it's like a seventh grade orchestra, you know, but man, something happened to me that day and it was an awakening. That's the only way I can describe it. And when they were done playing, I wanted to jump up and just yell at the top of my lungs. Like, yes, you know, I just, something switched in me. And she she finished the program, and it, it just, you know, the timpanies and that John Williams score just going through that whole gym. Um, but she finished what she was, you know, her pitch, and she said, hey, if you, if you want to join the orchestra, the sign-up sheet's in the back. When they dismissed, I ran to the back. I mean, it, and there was only a handful of us. And I remember distinctly looking around that room, Understanding whatever had happened to me that day didn't happen to everyone, mm-hmm. but it was this this call, you know, this call to me. And you know, I mean, I don't really know what I believe about destiny or wiring or stuff like that. But whatever happened that day, it was literally like a switch flipping on, and mm-hmm. it's never flipped off. Since wow. Then. I wonder if your mom would say that it was like an intentional, like she knew your artist soul or artist heart or if it was more like a fine quit you know like in the moment because I think maybe the brilliance of that is that piano lessons which I took piano for 11 years and like you very technical very like you know learn these skills which is great like you need the basics and all of that um, but unless you get the right teacher it can be very soulless maybe yeah, it's like you know dogmatic. like not it's- very art arty 
artisty. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder if she saw that in you and was like, if 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 we put him in a box of this is how you play the piano, I, I just wonder. Looking back now, I would think that it was like a maybe that was the genius of it was it took you out of that. This is what piano is, and get, got that out of your head to be like, oh wait, you can do what you want with the piano. Play play what you feel. Yeah, I mean. I think the big part of it for her was she was my teacher and we were just clashing so much. I think she was uh, like, she was the I don't teacher. want this. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, she's like, I don't want this to be damaging to her. Right. Cause man, it that was just sense. like, I was, you know, she, yeah, she yeah. would come down and nag me to practice all time. <laughs> oh, and, yeah. You know? And it was just like, uh, that's tough. So I think she, I think she and I both wanted that out of our relationship yeah. and it helped us. But to your point though, I knew I knew I needed to get back in. I knew I needed to hit it with passion. I knew I needed to put in a bunch of time. Mm -hmm. And instead of going to that public school, my mom got a job at a private school, which allowed me and my brother to go tuition free. Oh yeah. And they had some amazing musicians and art people there. But she, I told her, I said, hey, I need to start taking lessons again. So she got me with this other teacher and it was a similar thing where she was teaching me sheet music and I was trying so hard to do it. But it was, uh, it was still a, a dr drudgery for me. But she caught me noodling one day, mm -hmm. and I could tell her wheels were spinning, but she came to me the next week and she said, you know, I don't think I'm your teacher. I'm talking to my husband. He's, uh, he just plays by ear. He doesn't read music, but he knows chord theory, and he knows um, structure and modality, and, uh -huh. and he's actually really good. Um, would you be willing to meet with him? I was like, yeah, sure. I meet this guy and he's like literally like the piano's on fire when he finishes playing. Oh, he man. just tears it up, just wow. goes up and down these really elaborate runs. He plays really loud and he sings. Huh. He's like a Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. Oh, okay. Completely uncontained. Just this this prodigy that taught himself how to play. And it just blew the lid off what I knew about music. Mm -hmm. He said, yeah, forget about all that. Here's what you need. And he started teaching me basically Nashville chord numbering. Of He's course. like, all right, here's the chord groups. You know, here's the, here's the chords that go with this uh. key. Here's the chords that go with this key. Here's your minors. And, you know, and suddenly with a little bit of practice, I could play with chords, any song I could hear on nice. the radio. I wish I had that. He like gave me the tools I need. Like, it was almost like a language that I knew maybe, but I couldn't write it or something, you know, or I couldn't speak it until someone just spent a little bit of time with me. But, but yeah, man, getting, you know, to your point, getting me with the right teacher, mm -hmm. someone that got me, that understood me, someone yep. that was more aligned with maybe how I feel music or perceive mm -hmm. music or understand music mm -hmm. um, was a game changer. And I'm forever grateful to, to her for, to, to my original teacher for, well, my mom, obviously, for letting me quit. Mm -hmm. my, my second teacher for seeing that she needed to give me over to her, so her cool, husband who, yeah. who was more, you know, we were cut from the same cloth yeah. and how we, how we felt music and played it and everything. That is cool. Yeah. And, and good on her for, for seeing that in you and being able to discern that as a teacher. Yeah. And it, it sounds like he was able to just kind of give you just enough structure to like say, well, here's, here is the sandbox, but also you're not chained, but like, you know, he just gave you the building blocks to play with a little better. Sounds like. 
Yeah, and he was so confident. You know, I was going through my weird middle school times, and, and he was a singer, and I wanted to sing, and he would hear me sing. He'd be like, open up your mouth and sing louder. You know, like he would, <laughs> he would push me, you know, to like get out of that comfort zone too. And he was just, you know, they were both bigger than life characters. Just they were like me. They were artists, you know, and, mm. and um, definitely deep feelers and deep thinkers mm-hmm. and, and using their music to communicate their feelings. Um about life, but also about God, you know, to others, and and it was very cool. Sounds like that it's was awesome. a, a great early mentor relationship for you. It was, man, it was, and she tells a story about me, and, and she's exactly right, but one, one time during chapel, it, it, you know, it was a really solemn time, and there were people um, really working through some stuff, and it was silent in the room, and I, I had never done this before, but I felt like I was supposed to go up and play the piano during this time. Mm-hmm. And I went up and started oh. playing, and I was bombing so hard, like missing all these notes. But she was in the back crying because she could tell there was this calling, you know, this, this yeah. deep thing trying to come up Dang. in me. And, and so I'm bombing, playing all the wrong notes, but like I knew I was supposed to be up there on the piano. And, and that still resonates with me, man. I'm, I'm not, I mean, dude, there's, I don't really see myself as, this super talented artist. I, I think I'm talented enough to make a living, but I'm not like the person that's, you know, mm-hmm. um, that all the other artists are going to look up to. And yet it's what I'm supposed to do. It's what I'm supposed to be. And, um, yeah. so I take what talent I have and I try to do the best I can with it. But yeah, I heard telling that story about me up there, kind of in my brokenness and my mistake making and stuff like that and yet it was where I was supposed to be yeah that's so cool so how old were you when you started to kind of get that notion and then what was the path of following that in into high school and and beyond yeah I think that moment where I went up and started playing the piano was I was 13 um and then I got good enough where I could play and lead worship at my church and then kind of cascaded from there and I and I took deeper interests like I joined jazz band Mm -hmm. in high school and tried to learn jazz took from a jazz pianist wanted to keep expanding so uh, a jazz pianist I am not (laughs) but um (laughs) but that gives you some more chops oh yeah yeah I got some cool chops from that guy yeah he he changed the way that I looked at piano Mm -hmm. Um, it was cool learning from a jazz guy because they lean on their other musicians a lot. So mm-hmm. he's like, hey, you could you could take the bass note out of what you're playing and do this crazy inversion, and the bass player's got you. Oh, and I was yeah. like, oh, never thought about that. I always thought about holding the entire thing of up, course. like these ham-fisted banging on the piano. Right. But, yeah. but he's like, no, some nuance, man. Like, lean on your brother over here. He's got the he's got the root note. That's cool. You could use your other. You could use your hands and stack on top of what he's given you and it just got me thinking in terms of playing with other musicians sure almost like re i guess redirecting your swing if you play golf for a while or something but yeah jazz taking jazz was cool and i i'm a big advocate of continuing to hone your craft and push Mm. into new territory i'm actually taking guitar lessons from a guy that goes to church with us at Journey. Mm. Um, he's just fantastic musician, but I love how he plays, and he and I are, approach music very similarly. So whenever I have time and he has time, I'll go over to a studio and just 
have them teach me chops and I'll practice them, you know. I'm just constantly trying to expose myself to new ways of thinking and playing and, you know, not getting stagnant. You know, the same thing goes with the tools you use when you compose. Yeah. You know, try to, you know, I had a a mentor guy. I was using a sample library a lot and it was this girl's voice and I loved it so much. And he called me one day, he's like, Man, you're using that thing on everything. You need to blow. You need to blow that sample library out. I was like, No, it just sounds so great. She, yeah. He's like, Yeah, but dude, the last three things I've heard of you has that sample on it. You got to blow it out. And I was like, Ah, oh, you're right. Uh-huh. So you're constantly like, evolving, yeah. leaving Stepping old out of things the behind, zone. and yeah. you know, trying to step into the new. And I think that is the call, you know, on on you. And I think that's why an artist's journey can feel so spiritual. Is like yeah. you're constantly kind of, if you're doing it right, you're being called into new places right and yeah. leaving old places behind yeah so oh, is man. guitar kind of a a newer instrument for you oh i'm not i was the typical you know once i learned piano the guitar generally made sense to me but i didn't have my ten thousand hours in mm-hmm. on that instrument and so it was easy to pick up and play a few chords in capo and become like uh, a Nashville singer songwriter right <laughs> kind of right kind yeah. of approach to the guitar but like I want more than that you know I'm I want to be able to play it um, better on my scores like mm-hmm. a lot of the scores I do play guitar on but it's very limited uh-huh. what I can do right so um, I don't think I'll ever master the guitar like um, like this guy I'm taking from, but, but continuing to yeah. elevate myself sure. and, you know, play there. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I picked up guitar soon after I probably picked up guitar when I was 15 or 16, but never put the time in that mm. I should have. And now I, I want to lean on it as an actual mm-hmm. tone and flavor more in the scores. And so that's cool. So yeah, I've been teaching well, man, myself. one, the story that I, that always sticks out in my head is, um, you guys have been a journey for a while, yeah. And you're you're just kind of a kind of a cool, like mellow, chill guy, and super nice. And and I hear you're gonna lead worship, and I didn't know you well enough yet to know that you were a musician. I knew you're like an artist and a, did whatever you did with music or with uh, video and all that stuff. I was like, oh, okay, cool. And then, dude, he starts singing. I was like. What? Oh man, he he is. Uh, I mean, you, I think you undersold yourself when you were talking oh, earlier. Because when I first heard you, you were leading worship at the factory, and still to this day, my favorite version of it as well I've ever heard. Oh, Thanks, man. And just, I mean, you you have you have those chops. If that was the path you wanted to go, even now, it's there. You could do it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, so what was your? Uh, you grew up with a brother. Yeah. What was? Uh, what was your guys' relationship like growing up? We were really close. My mom and dad had trouble uh, getting pregnant. They miscarried, and then they had me, and I was an at-risk pregnancy. My mom was bedridden. I feel bad. <laughs> My mom was bedridden with me for several months, um, and everything you know turned out okay. But but soon after me, she got pregnant with my brother so we were like 14 months apart which is oh, pretty wow. crazy oh, wow. um but we had a typical brother relationship we loved each other and we would play together but we also sure bickered and yeah. sometimes and we're different you know very different different people groups um 
just different human beings. And yeah. I, he was uh, really trendy. He loved like uh, in high school, he loved clothing trends and stuff. Uh, okay. And it was a pretty cool time to be living because oh, yeah. it was the late eighties. And Seriously. so like a new trend would come out every month. You know, it was so fad driven and um, fashion. It, it was, it was cool, but I just wasn't like that, you know? Um, and, but you know, we, we definitely loved each other and have, have a great relationship. We um, recently, we, make time every year to go hang out he's a big thrill seeker adventure guy okay. and, and i'm not so he kind of pushes me but um uh-huh. we go out to the channel islands and we scuba dive and uh hike and climb and primitive camp so i've been learning how to hammock Ooh. camp is um, that where you oh were just posting on social media recently but no that was a different thing i i climbed a mountain with these mountaineer guys look like was, you climbed like higher was, than the clouds yeah it was nuts <laughs> i was not ready for it i, I <laughs> not, was not quite in the amount of shape i needed to be in Dang. to do that it was it was wild but uh but yeah i i see my brother i see my brother every yeah. every year for our trip and it's it's really good it's really That's good. Awesome. we have a cool relationship for sure that's very cool. Yeah. When did when was this? And he's shift? a great drummer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's helpful. Did you ever do the duo or the, oh, the yeah. family band? Oh yeah. Me and him played a lot. Yeah. Okay. He's he he can lay it down. Um, that was another cool thing is I just was so thirsty for music. I would sit in on his drum lessons, so they'd be doing rudiments, and I'd be in the corner like, okay, a paradiddle. You know, uh-huh. I would just try to I would just listen and like tap on my thighs you know just tap out the rhythms he was teaching because i and literally i can feel those rudiments show up in my piano playing so it's Mm. like everything you take in you know becomes a tool to use you know something to a force to bring to bear on hopefully getting something out of your head into the sure the world you know yeah yeah so what what was the the first love of film and and working in that space, I know it sounded like music was the first love. So where did film and even working and combining music and film together, how, how did that become a thing? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. Music is my first love. Like, it's the heart. Mm. If someone put a gun to my head and said, drop film or music, I'd be like, I'd drop film. Mm. It's, I'm, I am a musician who happens to make films mm-hmm. for a living, you mm-hmm. know? I love filmmaking. I, I love I love being a filmmaker. I love that stuff, but music is the heart. Mm. Yeah. The heart and the soul. And for sure. I, I can is tell more that. of the brain, I guess. Yeah. Um, so who were some of your first influences that really got you into like looking at that? Yeah, well I was picking out film scores when I was a kid and I remember having this thought because I got asked to do plays and singing little musicals mm-hmm. and stuff. And I remember thinking when I was a kid, I was like, man, if I could do something that had music and drama in it, I I think I could actually love my job. I remember having that kind of fleeting wow. thought. Hmm. But then I don't know how I many like I, I feel like this might be characteristic of an artist type, but I was just adrift, man. I was lost. I switched majors five times. Mm. I thought about going to the military. I was pre-med. I thought about being a cop. I was just lost. Yeah. Um, and I could have done any of those things and done well. But I was filing charts at a cardiologist's office that I was working for because I was studying to be pre-med, mm-hmm. and the thought hit me, what about directing films? And and suddenly kind of my dream of being a doctor started 
kind of fell apart. And I realized I had just chosen something. That's like, well, I could make good money and yeah. I could have a family. The security piece. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But all that was edifice and it kind of just crumbled. And I, I, I started thinking, yeah, man, I, I might want to direct films. And so, <laughs> so I, that seed kind of was birthed and I... But before that, there had to have been like some some film or films or or just a style of like as I remember the first time I noticed directing was a thing was in Christopher Nolan's Memento. Oh yeah, where he you know tells the story in reverse, and I'm like, oh, this is a totally different way of constructing. Yeah, and it's like you can see the intentionality behind the scenes and piecing it together mm-hmm. a certain way. Yeah. Whereas, and, and a lot of linear storytelling and, and conventional stuff, it's easy to not see behind the curtain mm-hmm. a little bit, but sometimes there's, there's, there's someone who just has such a vision and does something so different or something that really speaks to you specifically to where it's like, oh, someone was, is making me have this experience. Did you have something like that? Totally. What was that for you? Totally. Um, I have a complicated relationship with film because my parents, we were in the buckle of the Bible belt. Yeah. And my parents are very strict as it pertains to culture. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of things we couldn't watch. And it would just kill me because my ki- my friends were watching these movies. Oh, Brent, you should see this movie, man. It's so cool. This dude's face exploded or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, and I just felt really left out, mm. you know? And I would literally ask friends sometimes to tell me the plot of mm. movies. Like, okay, then what yeah. happened, you know? Yeah. And uh, I would live these movies that I couldn't see through my friends. But... In the midst of all of that, uh, they did get us, uh, they did, we were the second family on the block to get a VCR. Mm. So it was a strange contradiction yeah, of like, for real. Well, we don't want you watching movies. Um, I think it's more the movie theater. And I think they felt uh, bad. So they're like, well, we can get them this box. They'll play movies at the house. And My parents we were the same way. Bleep the bad words mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever we need to do. Make them, you know. Not have the pastor's kid be seen going into the... Yeah, maybe it was some of that. Maybe. Yeah, I, mean, I think, honestly, yeah. honestly, it was just their conditioning. Yeah, I think sure. their religious conditioning, that theaters were bad, and, you know, it was frowned upon, it was looked down upon. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, one day it was a surprise. Me and my brother came home. And th- back then with these VCRs, man, there was a technician in our basement, like, hooking the thing up to the TV because no one what? knew what to do with them. Oh, so, like, my god! Yeah, so, like, a TV technician <laughs> came out and installed the VCR because no one knew how to do it. That's you know? crazy. And so... Now, was it beta or was it VHS? No, it was VHS. Oh, you got VHS. And we walked in, there's a freeze frame of Star Wars, which you, we'd only seen once. Oh, wow. On the, and they had bought... Star Wars, and we just started wearing the tape out. We wore it out, and my my parents didn't seem to mind. And you know, they would get us old movies too that I like watching, like Turner Classic. You know, that kind uh-huh. of those kind of things. And and I liked old movies. I liked old westerns. I liked old TV. Um, I loved syndicated TV, like UHF channel stuff. But uh-huh. but where we would spend our time is wearing out Star Wars. Well, then one day my dad came home again, completely contradictory, you know, life. Me and my brother were living, but my dad came home. And he's like, hey, guys, I don't know what you would call this, but my friend has a best friend who owns a movie theater and they set up a camcorder in the back and they recorded the movie 
and they they recorded a couple of movies. <laughs> they pirated it. <laughs> yeah, and he's like he's and he pulls a VHS tape out. He goes, oh, I don't know. Have you heard gosh. of these movies? Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes Back. Let's and go. we oh, wow. flipped out. You, you got the early out. bootlegs. Well, <laughs> what I recall as a kid in the '80s is both of those movies got into litigation hell or something they did not come out on vhs for years and we were one of yeah. the only kids in Whoa. the world to be wearing out raiders and empire strikes back i think it was VHS. something with lucasfilm yeah and rights yeah. yeah it was crazy so we're watching these horrible bootlegs over and over again but to to um get finally get back to answering your question it was um Empire Strikes Back and Raiders, those two films. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan directed Empire, and and you, if you watch that movie today, it is just, it just purrs along like it just the, it's just throttles perfectly. The timing of it, it's just one of the most perfect like mm. pop culture films ever made. It's by far the best Star Wars film. Um, in very Shakespeare. In my mind, yes. Yeah. I mean, like no other films touch it in the yeah. entire like. In the mm -hmm. entire history of Star Wars, so yeah. I I didn't know it at the time, but I had like the ultimate Star Wars film that we were watching over and over again, and and also Raiders. I think Spielberg's touch and his take on a classic kind of old school serial, like there was something mm -hmm. magical about his directing, and we quit counting when we had watched both of those movies 40 times. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. So that was my baptism by fire as I'm watching the greatest Star Wars film of all time over and over again, and I'm watching uh, still one of my top three movies of all time by Spielberg, uh, Raiders, over and over again, yeah. over and over again. Both classic adventure epics. Yeah, but also just such high-functioning yeah. storytelling. Yeah, great oh, filmmaking yeah. Sure. So it's like... You're indoctrinating yourself in what a good edit is, what really good acting is, what great shots are, the sound. I mean, everything about it. You know, Ben Burt did sound on both of those films. I mean, just I, so I didn't realize it, but like the bar was being set really high sure. you know, on those two. So, yeah, I would definitely say if somebody desert islanded me with a bunch of VHS tapes and a, you know, a a VCR player, I would definitely lean on a lot of Spielberg films. Mm. I, I love his aesthetic. I think he's very spiritual. I think he does it with a lot of heart, but he's also one of our greats. Mm -hmm. He's a maestro. So yeah. he's a maestro that's that can move you spiritually, move your, your soul without it being too earnest or like he's cloying. It's just he naturally this this emotional storytelling just pours out of him because that's mm. who he is. And I really, really, really look up to him and respect him. And I love stuff that makes you feel. And so I think growing up with Spielberg and still, you know, looking up to him. And I, I mm. love, um, as far as weird stuff, uh, I love Terry Gilliam. He was the... Oh, yeah. He's the American, the one American of in Monty, Monty Python. Python. And, yeah. Uh, went off to have a really zany, wacky film career. Um, What's a couple of your favorite Gilliam films? Gilliam? Uh, Brazil. Oh, yeah. For sure. And nobody saw it, but it's it's his masterpiece. It's a now, masterpiece. there's three different cuts of that. Yeah. Which uh, is your favorite? 
I like the director's cut. That's my favorite. I like the stuff that he added in. It's like um, 40 minutes longer, I think. I don't think it's quite that long. It's it's a fair amount longer. Is it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's... Uh, like I the like, Criterion collection. Yeah, the stuff that he added in is... I think helps the story. Mm. I think my favorite is 12 Monkeys. I just love that story. It's fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. And again, just somebody to watch because he he has this love-hate relationship with acting. And so he wants, yeah. he'll have like acting coaches uh, on for his people, you know, his cast. He doesn't want to like get into the minutia of their acting. But at the same time, man, if they're not delivering... He just knows. He'll be like, yeah. hey, this is flat. We need, I, I need you to bring, I mean, he, he knows good acting. And so it, it's really fascinating to watch him work. He's obsessed with tiny little details. And mm. I'm, I'm not like that in my personality, but like when you direct, you have to. You have mm. to, it, yeah. everything is so idiosyncratic. I, the buck stops a, with you. <clears throat> yeah, I heard a Michael Mann quote one time. One, an actor was actually sitting with him and wardrobe was coming in showing him ties and he's waving them away, waving them away. He's like, <laughs> like you know, 20 ties in, he keeps waving them away. And the, my actor friend was like, man, it's just a necktie. Like, what's the big deal? Uh, he's like, yeah, he's like, the thing you got to realize is on on a screen, that necktie is four feet tall and right. four feet mm-hmm. wide. So it's like, <clears throat> and you know what? I'm never going to obsess over a necktie like Michael Mann, but... At the same time, his sentiment is true. It's bigger than life. Every tiny little pixel, you know, gets blown up in this giant, mm-hmm. huge sure. experience. At least if your movie's going to the theater, right. so you have to right. care about every little tiny detail in your frame. You know, yeah, the intentionality and, and vision. Yeah. So, what was like? Did you go to film school? Like, what was your first experimentation with kind of moving from music into experimenting with with filmmaking? Yeah, I ended up um, working at a church because that's kind of what I knew. So I was their music and their drama guy, Mm. and I continued to get my hours in there. And and it was cool because they totally let me off the chain. So I was building sets, and we were doing these really elaborate productions uh, for the church. And that's cool. We would do these vacation Bible schools that people would come from like a hundred miles to go to. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was like an immersive, almost like a Disneyland approach to VBS. And so we did, um, we did a time machine one and we built a huge set with like a working time machine, except it couldn't send you back in time. time It couldn't really send you back in time, (laughs) but like, you know, it had this crazy, awesome, you know, basically theatrical and, and film effects. So when we turned this thing on and we had like, subwoofers and so you know cool. built-in practical lighting and like it would kid the kids thought it was real um and so i was able to kind of start flexing some of those muscles of oh what what's the world like what's the world that we want to build mm-hmm. to make these kids feel like they're in this different world and i was just man i was putting in my time you know and world building basically and it was cool to feel the support of the church and that they would let me do this crazy stuff and they would give me budgets for it and, and that was cool. But in the middle of all that, I realized I needed film training, you know, that I needed to do some actual work at school in a classroom to learn. And people, some, you know, the next person, next filmmaker you interview will probably say the opposite. That's what's crazy about filmmaking is you kind of have to find your path. I, yeah. I always say, 
filmmaking or even artistry in general, if you want to make a living doing it, it's like a hypothetical Everest where there's 20,000 ways to get to the summit. You just have to find yeah. your way up Everest. Um, I think that's so, good for life, too. Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the terrible thing about it is when someone else dictates to you how you should do it, and yeah. then you try that way and you fail. That doesn't mean you weren't supposed to make right. it. It means exactly. you probably shouldn't have, like tried their prescribed route yeah. right and yet there's thousands of how to do it this way books for the music industry film yeah. industry yeah i i generally walk with a huge degree of humility when it comes to that because uh, i wouldn't presume to tell anyone how to do it like the <laughs> the tough part is you have to figure out how mm -hmm. to do it for you like for me i knew i needed to take some film classes so I started doing research and calling department chairs of all the colleges, and there was only one school at the time that actually offered a bachelor's in film, and that was Southern Methodist University. And it's a pretty expensive mm -hmm. private college. And mm -hmm. I'm this guy, you know, single income, working at this little country church, you know, and I, I was like, I don't know, I'm gonna do this. But I applied for a grant and uh, wrote the department uh, like an essay and they gave me some extra grant money. So I took out a pretty small student loan, but I couldn't believe it, but like most of it was subsidized. That's you know? so cool. And nice. it was hilarious because I was so poor. I was driving my old beat up Ford Ranger and I would, um, <laughs> I didn't have enough money for the parking uh, permit. It was uh -huh. like 280 bucks. And so I would, I would illegal park in between a Lexus and a Beamer and I and uh, once every couple months, I would someone they would find me and give me a ten dollar ticket. So I, I would just pay my parking tickets, and like I ended up saving you know two hundred bucks. Oh yeah, <laughs> per semester. So, but that's how I did it. I mean, I just went to this really prestigious school that had no business going, you know, for my income level, and uh, you know, with the scholarships and grants. And, that's cool and though. Man. Gaming the system a little bit. I, I took some classes. Um, I did not graduate. Um, I, you know, Kim and I had started having kids really young and we were pregnant with our fourth kid. And when we had her, my, I knew my time at the church was coming to an end mm -hmm. and I'd been there nine years. And so I was like, it's time. And I launched out into the film community in Dallas. And it was the craziest jump of mm. my life i mean i leaped from a burning platform into the fog not oh, knowing yeah, if there was sure. going to be another platform to catch me but it was like i need to be successful i yeah. need to make this way yeah it was definitely a leap that i had to take um but it wasn't pretty i mean i started out <clears throat> i started out as a pa and a pa is basically like a glorified pee on you mm -hmm. know, gopher yeah you're a gopher you coffee, get coffee getter. Uh, you get coffee you clean up messes i uh uh had to pick up a bunch of dog crap one day mm. for a job cool. i had to wash a bunch of dishes in a bathroom sink um because they didn't they uh, didn't pay for the kitchen i mean it was it was bad <laughs> i got yelled at a lot you just get yelled at by very mean people but that was even formulative for me because i remember looking at those people in their brokenness, you know, and just how they treated everyone in mm -hmm. the hierarchy and looking down at the little people on set. And I remember thinking, you know, when I make it 
to a place where I have my own crew. I'm not going to do it this way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm going to treat everybody with kindness and we're going to do away with this pecking order of this caste system. Yeah. But it was so cool to be on the lowest rung for a year and a half and experience what that feels like. Um, but also meet the other people on the lowest rung that you can tell are going to go big places. And the, the, um, what you quickly find out on a jaded film set with older people is that yeah. they don't give a crap what you want to do with your life. They're just, <laughs> oh, just man. tell me where the light goes and uh, what time is lunch. You know, there's just yeah. there's a lot of jaded right. people. And I, Job. I was, yeah, I was so excited. I was like, yeah, man, I'm working on this short film and it's gonna be really cool. And you know, like, yeah, okay, cool. Go bring me that chair. You know, <laughs> they didn't care. And yeah. so the artistry's lost a yeah. little bit. Oh man, yeah, there's. Uh, I would say one of the most toxic places you could walk into besides a war zone in America is a film set. It's oh, just, wow. It can Man. be a very toxic place full of very toxic people that are jaded and bitter, but not all. And, um, you know, you choose who you surround yourself with, too. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting. You'd show up on one person's set and the culture would be completely different. And, you know, there'd be a lot of kindness, but it was the people at the top kind of setting the tone. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so I learned a lot from that, too, just watching how people set up their cultures. And I'm very picky about it. Um, I've left jobs. I've left organizations over culture because, like, I've, it's a very huge value, high value target for me. Yeah. Um, creating a culture where you know, we're not going to be perfect. I'm going to have bad days and be fussy and things aren't going to go my way but when we recover what's the baseline of our culture you know that's important to me yeah. so I took film classes at SMU but I dropped out and I'm kind of proud of that and I dropped out when my nice. kid arrived and just dove into the film world like trying to make money in film and but you felt like you you got what you needed from it yeah I did I did I I took all the film classes for the major except one um, so I did get a lot of, a lot of training and it was really cool how they did their, their major. Half of it was theory and, um, classwork. Yes. Classwork. So yeah. literally the first day I was at school, they're like, get out your notebooks and take notes. You're going to be taking notes on Citizen Kane. I'm like, you don't take notes on a movie. You watch a movie. <laughs> like, no, no. Get out your notebook you're, and you're looking for these 10 things and they, he handed out a fly, you know, and you're sitting there taking everything you see, and it totally blew my mind. And I got kind of scared because they get you reading film as text. Yeah. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to read film. I want to watch it. I want to feel it. And I got really scared. I actually started mm. looking online, and and I was like, you know, can once you've once you've seen this way of reading film as text can you unlearn it and does just, it ruin it for you yeah oh, man. so i started like spielberg can just check out he can watch a movie and just check out and just be like overwhelmed by it and not see the cuts and not see the you know how it was directed oh, that's or cool and i was like okay well if he can do it maybe i can and scorsese you know i read something similar to him where he can just check out and just enjoy a film so i was like please god you know let me have the switch that turns off and on. Yeah. It turns out that I did. Oh, nice. So I was very thankful. So I can just watch a movie still and not see the cuts, but it, it scared me. I, I was like, I don't want to, 
it was the same thing I, I felt like when I was taking some music classes in college where they're trying to teach you the inner workings of your vocal cords mm -hmm. and you know, like kind of pulling the curtain back. And I was like, I don't know if I want to know all this. I, there's something kind of mystical about it to me. I don't want that fog to lift. And I mm -hmm. had the same feeling about film, but I had to you yeah. know, make it academically. And the other thing I would say about passion is it will show up in your life in crazy ways. Like I was never, I, I, I was a smart kid, I guess. I, I made A's and B's not working, uh, not working too hard. But, um, but man, when I hit film school, I uh, made the dean's list. Every, nice. Every semester. So, and so it just, There's it wasn't, there. that's it. Yeah. yeah. I was just so activated, you know, I was activated and, and wanted it so bad. <clears throat> um, and it showed up in my grades, you know, yeah. um, and it was pretty effortless, but, but all that to say, I knew I needed to read films as text to learn everything that yeah, they wanted sure. me to learn. Um, and it's helpful to, to be able to just on the technical side, know what, I mean, like Citizen Kane's one of the most masterfully created and directed films yeah. ever. And so far ahead of its time yeah. to be able to kind of just see what was being done and the intentionality behind it is helpful. I imagine when you can shut it off to be able to access that and kind of see things from a like, almost like the God perspective yeah. of like, okay, I can compose all these pieces together, but then once they're together, I can just enjoy it for what it is. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. I learned so much when he said, look for these things in this film. I think it would have just gone in subconsciously and worked on me, but you don't see the active choices he's making to create the psychology yeah. of like what he's trying to communicate with these characters and how he framed everything. And, oh, it's fascinating. And then you appreciate it that much more because, oh, I didn't see that in there. Mm -hmm. That yeah. makes it so much cooler when you can make those connections. Yeah. And then hopefully it, it's like that goofy cliche in art, but learn it and then forget it, you know, but yeah. I, I think sometimes you can do that. So hopefully that residue of what, I learned studying Citizen Kane and just the mastery of Orson Welles. Yeah. Like the way that he deployed the camera had never been done like that before. Mm. And so learning those things, hopefully they're bouncing around your brain somewhere and you're bringing those forces sure. to bear on, yeah. on your work as well in some, some degree. So by this time you said you've, you've had your fourth kid. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Kim. Yeah. How did you, how did you guys meet? We met at church. Um, well, no, actually, the first time I met, there was this little Christian club, and you know, I, I definitely was in the little Christian subculture mm -hmm. in Dallas, the, again, the buckle of the Bible mm -hmm. Belt, but there was this little club called Footloose, and they would bring in nice. all these little Christian bands from out of state, like in their vans. You know, people, I don't know. I mean, these guys were making no money. You know what I'm saying? But, yeah, uh, oh, yeah. But we went, there was this L.A. band that I liked called the Altar Boys and um, uh, went to this Altar Boys concert. I've heard and of they them. Play, yeah, they were playing in Dallas. I mean, uh -huh. it's just crazy. There was probably 40 of us in the room. But um, she was at that show. And I just met her and said hi, you know. Yeah. But, but I really wouldn't meet her in a meaningful way until three years later. So wow. we met. I was 19, she was 16, she started going to my youth group, and I asked her out, and man, we just... Sweet. We just connected. Yeah. It was like instant, 
And that's still visible, by the way. Like mm-hmm. that's noticeable that you guys are just. Yeah, we just like you know get each you other's meet, vibe. Yeah, you meet those people, and you're just they just this person has a way, mm-hmm. and you like the way that mm-hmm. person is, and you just want to be in their gravity. Yeah, you know. So it's cool. That's I awesome. knew within a couple of weeks it was bizarre, but I knew within a couple of weeks we could get married and make it work, and you know, like. You know, <laughs> Not, That's cool. not you know, like definitely, definitely make mistakes and definitely have sure. struggles, which we have. We've of had course. deep struggles, you know. Um, but, but I just knew we could be deep friends. And yeah. So, so it was a little crazy because she was sixteen, I was nineteen. So, um, so yeah, that's what we worked on at first was just becoming great mm-hmm. friends. Yeah. Just hanging out. That's awesome. Yeah, but we got married. Uh, I was twenty-two. She was nineteen when we got married so nice <laughs> and started Love having it. kids yeah. soon after <laughs> so when the the when the fourth kid came along and i jumped out and started paing i mean we had a mortgage i had yeah. four kids single income family it was it was yeah. it was rough and yeah. pa salary is not no awesome. you can't do it you can't <laughs> do it so i knew i knew to get where i needed to go i, I had to do other things so i launched a little company for me that um would allow me to chase other work and mm-hmm. and I had learned a lot of different things so I, I I figured if I could find some people that would let me do work for them I could do turnkey oh, like yeah. corporate work or shoot commercials or music videos or yeah. whatever and so that's what I did I would just scrape for work so I had three tracks going at one time I was taking any job that anybody called me to do so PAing people found out that I could do audio and hear sound so I started getting invited to do audio which bumped my rate up it oh, did, yeah. doubled my rate so sure. i was able to leave piang behind and do more uh audio work on set mm-hmm. and uh again doubled my rate so that started helping a lot then i was shooting stuff for corporate clients but on the weekends because i wanted to be a filmmaker i wanted to direct but on the weekends i was making short films with my friends that's so cool and i would go guys I, you know i want to do these things out in the woods it's a it's a monster or this asteroid crashes. How can you do an asteroid crash? I don't know. <laughs> you know, so, um, so you know, you'd use movie magic. I mean, yeah. I, I did a film that Spielberg watched oh. that had an asteroid crash. Wow. And I dug a hole in my backyard and I filled it with a party fog machine, you know, fog juice, and yeah. I put a red light in the bottom of it and it looked sick. I shot it on this cheap camera. And I had a doorway dolly that we had built with PVC pipe. I mean, oh, wow. I am, I am the blue collar. So you were like yeah. the Sam Raimi. Yeah, I came up so scrapping cool. on the street. Just I knew the shots I wanted. I knew I didn't have a million dollars to right. do it. And we just like, well, how can we do this? But I had friends that were welders, and there was a shot I needed that was that required circular dolly track, and they yeah. built it for me. You know, oh, so it's cool. like oh, we amazing. just did what we could. I had a rain scene in another film. Uh, Spielberg saw two of my shorts, and that's my greatest claim to fame. How, how <laughs> uh, did you write how that? In the world? Um, yeah, it was cool. Uh, so I guess that's the next chapter for me. I, I was just moving along. You know, we were struggling so much financially. It was really tough. It was tough on Kim, especially. Sure. Um, it was. Uh, definitely dark times for us as far as like the outlook of well will i ever 
mm-hmm. be able to make enough money to right. really support us. And so it was those it was those definitely years of crunch time and investment. But yeah. I was cruising along, making short films on the weekend, picking up every job that I could. And you know, that that rocked along probably for two or three years. And I got a call from a friend and they said, Hey, Spielberg is doing a reality show for, you know, looking for the next great filmmaker. You should submit. Oh, like, was that Project Greenlight? No. It came right after Project Greenlight. Okay. It was called On the Lot. Oh, I, I've heard of that. Um, so I didn't believe it at first. I was like, man, Spielberg hasn't done anything on TV since the, anim- you know, the Animaniacs or whatever. So yeah, I, yeah. And, um, and Which, then, a classic, then, by the oh, way. Oh, yeah, totally. And then another friend called me and said, hey, you need to check out this thing Spielberg's doing. And then when the second person called me, I thought, hmm. this must be real. So I got online and looked, and he was doing a tandem show with Mark Burnett of Survivor fame. Uh, he, he and Mark had become friends, and they were producing basically the American Idol version for filmmakers. Wow. And it was called On the Lot. And they opened up a worldwide talent search, and 11,000 people submitted short films. And I just, I kept getting callbacks. I finally got invited to Atlanta. There were 100 of us left from out of 11,000. And we had to do an interview with one of the producers, and they just want to see how I was on camera and how I talked and all that. And, um, and on the way out the door, I had to pay. <laughs> we were so broke and poor. I had to pay for my flight to Atlanta. And my my sister in law was a like she worked at Delta, and mm. like she was trying to swing deals for me because we were just so broke. Man, I'll never forget it. Golly. Yeah. Um, but on the way out the door, he said, "Oh, by the way, you know it's a hundred of you guys now. It'll be fifty next week. Steven Spielberg is going to be watching your short films, and he's going to be in your this thing we just taped, and he's going to be deciding the fifty that go to L.A." Oh wow. So I just walked out stunned. Oh yeah. And I was like, man, even if I lose, I won because my yeah. hero is watching some of my material. Yeah. You know? Of all the people it could have been. Yeah, and then it was so crazy because like I'd throw my kids in. So I went home and I told some of my kids, I was like, yeah, those shorts you guys did, Spielberg's watching that. And I'd tell my friends oh my that acted gosh. on my shorts, hey, Spielberg's watching your Dude. acting this week. You know, we were just, it was like a dream, you know. But I got the call back. I got invited to L.A. and I was 20th to get kicked off the show. Um, I got to meet Carrie Fisher. Oh, oh wow. Um, <laughs> R.I.P. Yeah, she was very kind, very kind soul, very kind to me whenever we interacted. Um, and a filmmaker herself. Oh, uh, one of the most successful ghostwriters of all time. Really? People don't know that about her, but she is a fantastic writer. Wow. And she, uh, she I knew script- she had directed a couple times. Well, she was, one, she was probably top three sought-after script doctors in really? the 90s. No kidding. Oh, wow. She made a bunch of money. Um, Did not know that. And she was yeah. part of something that uh, Brett Ratner was doing a few years back, kind of a similar type thing, trying to find up-and-coming filmmakers, and she was kind of like on the panel of judges. Well, Brett Ratner was a judge and On the Lot, so you might be thinking of On the Lot. Oh, maybe I am. Yeah. Maybe I am. Yeah, Brett Ratner was on. Yeah, uh, that, Gary that Marshall. is what Yeah. I got to meet Gary Marshall. I, think I saw this show. Yeah, Did you? it uh, it bombed. Yeah, it must have. It bombed. It uh, it was the most expensive show 
and people just thought it was going to take off. They thought with Spielberg and Mark Burnett, they just thought it was going to take off. But the structure of the show wore people out. They um, was part of the show where you where people would have to be given a project to do. Yes. I saw yeah, the show. Yeah, I saw. I, oh I watched gosh. it like every episode. Well, you saw me first couple episodes. That is <laughs> insane. Oh, I gotta go back. Is yeah. it on Hulu or something? Now? I don't know where it's at. Um, I have to I look into somewhere. that. And um, we, I, I actually dodged the bullet because man, it was a brutal show. It definitely had the Mark Burnett thing where you know it was scorched earth when you got let go. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would the judges would be like, "This, these are the thirty things where each where you're an idiot, so therefore you're cut." It was that kind oh, of thing. Wow. Whoa. Well, what happened was with me, it was kind of cool. I had a great episode with my team. My team was actually showcased on the episode as a team that worked together. And the contrast they chose, and it was so beautiful for me, but they showed a team that worked together and put aside our egos and our differences because they they purposefully put you in a pressure cooker to Mm -hmm. make you break down and lose it on camera so they have Uh, good entertainment. So they showed a couple teams implode and fall apart, and a bunch of them got cut. And then they they contrasted it with my team and one other team. The two of our teams worked together, and all of us stayed. That's cool. So it was kind of neat what they were saying with it in the editorial and the contrast, and I was glad I was on the right side of the equation. you know. But but at that point, the show had gotten into ratings trouble, and they knew it, and they they thought one of the problems was bringing 50 people to L.A. to start the show was too much, so they rapidly iterated it down to get to a smaller number in Uh hopes that people would re-engage with it so i actually got cut you were a casualty of that process yeah so when the next in the when the next show started i was already cut so i dodged the bullet like i didn't have to endure my you know 15 minutes of shame you're right yeah you're cut down sucked in these 40 areas that's why we're (laughs) sending you home man you know it's like i didn't i ended up not having to um face that so that was good but um so from there on what was the the path towards i know you moved to alabama for a while and worked for a company and then somehow from that the the i can only imagine thing was was birthed tell us a little bit about that whole process yeah it was really hard um it was hard because i had literally had this dream and this dream changed my life i woke up i woke up from this dream it was in my late 20s and actually felt different about my life. It was crazy. I don't know if you guys have ever had a dream like that. Mm-hmm. but um, Had a couple. Yeah. I, I dreamed I met Spielberg and I showed him my project and he was moved by it and he said, yeah, we need to do this. And that connection with him, with that hero, I woke up and, I, and suddenly a big career was possible. Mm. I started dreaming, like I started believing that, yeah, I could do something that would get me an audience with Spielberg. And I started kind of operating in that belief. That dream gave me nice. like the belief that I could do that, you know? Wow. Yeah. So then on the lot comes along, I'm like, this is it, man. This I'm going to meet Spielberg, you know? And, um, which the guy who won did. I mean, he got to meet Spielberg and it was really cool. But, um, but I, I didn't. I got sent home back to my life and I had to reboot and it didn't seem like I had a path forward Mm. for a feature, Mm. you know, a feature film career. No one was doing it in Dallas and I just felt really alone. And, and I was like, well, I just, I, I got back and I think I felt the weight for the first time of how tired I really was. Mm. Like how I just been grinding and just not 
not really having a lot to show for it. Yeah. But I pulled myself up my, by my bootstraps, and because I was on the on the lot, I had a first look deal with DreamWorks and Fox, and the business affairs guy really liked me. Um, I don't really know why. He just liked me. He was always kind to me. And so I reached out to him. I said, hey, man, could I possibly use some of the stuff that I made for the show and take it to festivals? Because that's kind of what I do. I make these shorts and take them around. He's like, absolutely. You have our blessing. Hmm. And I, I thought they were going to say no because it was this giant network TV show thing and they owned everything that mm -hmm. I made. And, but they let me. And so I entered a short film one of the one one of the, the films that Spielberg saw, I entered that into Sundance and got a rejection letter. It was an expensive rejection letter, seventy five bucks. <laughs> so oh, nice. entered, you know, you sent him seventy five bucks to get a letter back. That says, yeah, we're not going to take your movie. So, so that was tough. But then the next, the next festival I entered in, I made it all the way to finals with that same film. And in that particular festival if you made it to finals they gave you thirty thousand dollars to make a short film and Whoa. at that point i had never seen money like that never right. never nice. now was this a short film that you were submitting yeah so i made it to finals on the on the lot short that i made that okay. spielberg saw i made okay. it to the finals and then for, for your final round you were going to go out and make a new film that they gave you a budget for mm. So suddenly I had $30,000. I was like, all right, I'm swinging for the fence. And I made this crazy um, underworld purgatory, epic, you know, 20-minute film about these people that are lost in this level of hell and trying to get out. And there's a kid down there, and they're asking themselves, why is there a kid in hell? You know, so... It's almost uh, like a Dante's Inferno. Yeah, it was definitely thing. inspired by Dante's Inferno. But there's this innocent kid trapped down there. Yeah. So you're trying to figure it out. But it ends up having, like, this kind of cool twist at the end. But... In, at the, in the end of all that, I won third place. And, you know, we still, I used every dollar of that money to make the film. And mm -hmm. that's kind of, that's my, I think, some of my artist flaw. You know, and the wiring is like, you know, you don't pay yourself sometimes or whatever. But, oh, yeah. but I just put it all into that. And, um, and then again, yeah, it, it happened again. I'm like, well, I won third place. Go back home. Maybe I should find something else to do. Mm. You know, I don't know. I don't. I don't know if I can do this. And Kim was definitely fatigued. At, you know, us not having any money, sure. just being broke all the time. How old are you at this point? Um, I was early thirties. It was a. Uh, let me see. It was this was two thousand nine, so I was thirty six, thirty five, thirty six. Um, you know, kids growing up. Um, but again, you know, if I can encourage anyone listening, sometimes it's two steps forward, one step back, and you just have to keep showing up. Mm -hmm. The greatest thing you can do is just show up. So I'm still making short films, and even though I'm tired, I'm putting my material out there and I'm honing my craft. And um, this is what set me up to have a career because on the way out the door there, these two guys walk up to me and they're business guys, like, hey, we want to talk to you about something. Can you come back? To Nashville, I was like, "Yeah, sure." So we came back in the van, and they pitched a fully funded feature film to me, oh. and it was going to be a low-budget film, like two million dollars. But they, but we want you to write 
and direct this thing for us. Still the most money you'd ever seen at that point. Oh, yeah. And then I was going to be on salary for two years. Yeah, for um, real. You know, and suddenly everything paid off, Mm. you know, and I was offered this, my first film. And it's very difficult. You know, we had to leave both families behind. We had had such a tight-knit family. Both pairs of grandparents were five minutes from the house. And they, to kids were grown were raised by both sets of grandparents mm, uh you know, to a degree what um, film was this this was a movie i did in nashville in 2012 called unconditional okay and, oh um, yeah man and uh yeah i mean for my first movie it definitely could have been a lot better i made a lot of mistakes there was a lot of things uh, that were difficult in the making of it but at the same time it was my first feature film yeah, and man. suddenly i'm a feature filmmaker and um, that opened up a lot of opportunities, man. People saw the movie, um, and you know, a lot of people liked it. The people that did see it, it didn't do very good at the box office. It, it didn't. It hardly did any money at the box office. But what's interesting for all you uh, young filmmakers out there that are trying to break in, uh, if you do even a million dollars at the box office, it triggers really cool things in your ancillary sales. So I didn't know that. So it did over a million. So Target's calling, Walmart's calling, Amazon's oh, calling, nice. iTunes is calling. Because they're like, oh, yeah, okay, well, it did a million. So it, that, that's kind of like their number that vets you. So we ended up getting great ancillary deals. And it really found a beautiful home on Netflix. I would just get cold emailed and Facebooked all the time. Yeah, that's movie, where I saw it. Yeah, your movie is so beautiful. Thank you. You know, So it definitely found a life. It found a home. And um, I recently had a meeting with Netflix. And they looked up the metrics. And like, oh, yeah, man your movie did good, you know? So it, they will never tell you exactly what it did. Right. Yeah. They're very secretive, but sure. yeah. But she's just looking at the metrics going, yeah, your movie did well. But that it, so. Christian audience is is very loyal uh, to to sort of that that milieu of, of film. Once they, once they d- find one that they really resonate with, they tell people about it. Yeah, it's interesting you raise it up. I have a love-hate relationship with that label like I fought on unconditional I fought against it Mm -hmm. I didn't want it to be a Christian film I wanted to be a film about faith but I wanted it to be more in the realm of like signs you know where this guy has lost his faith Mm -hmm. and it's so powerful when he regains his faith again but it's not you wouldn't call signs a Christian film right but it deals heavily in faith yeah faith like honestly faith in signs was the theme of the entire movie and I love movies like that and so so yeah, I, uh, that that's a, that's been a struggle uh, for me of like that label and people laugh at me because I'm I'm definitely you know similarly to getting sucked into church work when I said <laughs> I wouldn't do it like I've yep. definitely been like the kicking and screaming baby you know dragged into film that's labeled Christian film I'm the black sheep I'm the I'm the person that says really wacky stuff in note meetings and they're like how did this guy get in here you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, you know, I think in some ways that makes the work better because mm. I buck all of the propaganda. I buck the all conventions. of the pandering yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, like, the obligatory scenes that you have to put in to check the boxes. And, like, for me, um, I just have a different way that I label Christian film. I, I label Christian film in ways that as someone who is fo- trying to follow Christ at least – I see a movie that 
tries to pull me up the mountain on mm. my walk. Oh, and yeah. to me, that's a Christian film. So I think of films like Lars and the Real Girl. Um, that is a movie about a dude who becomes obsessed with an anatomically correct sex doll. So, you know, <laughs> I, I see Christ in that film. I, man, the community bands around him. He's mentally ill. And uh, if you haven't seen the movie, it's just... It's just well, it's a lot beautiful. about processing grief and stuff. Yeah, too. It's, and, but it's how this, you know, they have the meeting in the basement of the church and like, what are we going to do with this guy? And they're like, we need to love him. We need to be in community yeah. with him. Mm. That's the gospel, right? There. Ooh, dude, I mean, that, that movie takes me to church, you know, and, and um, whereas Christian films don't. Um, mm -hmm. I don't watch Sometimes Christian they films. beat you over the head yeah. a little too hard. You. And then there's that him. moment or two, you, and, and most of them, where it's like, okay, this is the obligatory. Mm, yeah. Just it's just all about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting, even working on the Christian films I've done. Like, um, you know, I would fight him and be like, "You don't have to have a conversion scene in this movie." <laughs> well, yeah, we need it. We need it. You know, and they'd go shoot a conversion scene, but over time, they would listen, and mm. so a lot of it would get cut out. And yeah. so, I feel like. The stuff that I have done, I am proud of the contributions I've made to, yeah. the, to the work that I've done in the space because I'm just constantly kind of trying to push outside the boundaries because the boundaries of it are false to me. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like films and, you know, other filmmakers are guilty of this too, but I don't like films where everything gets wrapped up with a bow and yeah. everybody, you know. Sure. Because um, life's not that way. No, not very realistic. No, you know. So if, if it's a, if it's a Christian sports drama, they always win the <laughs> they always win the big game in the of end. Course. It's not about that, you know. It's not it's not about that, man. It's about like life humbling you and you figuring out what you believe about suffering and how you are going to work to alleviate suffering in other people's lives with mm -hmm. empathy and compassion and love. And so I think. I think in some ways, like we've created a monster, and it, it's it's like kind of like a, it's a pacifier. Mm. You know, it's 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 uh, it's people who want their worldview reflected back at them yeah. in their entertainment. Oh, that's yeah. good. Um, that's good. But it's not real life. Like so, yeah. you know. So for me, it's definitely a struggle. It's a struggle being in the space. Um, but people are appreciative of what yeah. I do because, like, I bring that kind of yeah. <laughs> that black sheep energy to the thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, you guys, you don't have to, you don't have to do that. You don't have to put those scenes in. And right. So along those lines, a, a film that that has been your most successful to date, that I can only imagine, film. Yeah. Is kind of there must be this kind of push pull the way that you're talking in that because it's like. That was a truly great film, and I don't usually watch Christian films and say say that about them because right. there's not many you can say that about. Yeah, and it's almost created like a renaissance in that space where like there's there's uh, it feels like there's a lot of studios looking to kind of like recreate that because that's almost been like that's the benchmark now. Yes. So so, what was your end towards that? Did you already know Bart? Millard and kind of his story. I know you're both from Texas, and, and there's the journey connection yeah. to church. Like, yeah, what was the, the entry point to to creating that and then what that is doing for your career and you think the space now? Yeah. 
Uh, it's very ironic. Bart and I were ships in the night at Journey because as he was beginning to attend Journey, I was leaving to go to Alabama to start working on his movie. So, oh, <laughs> so that, I, we yeah, missed each crazy. other by like two weeks. And oh, so wow. we actually got to know each other working on the film. You know, we would do the the Irwin brothers were the directors, and we they would take me along because I was writing it with them and. Um, so we would spend time with his family and him and interviewing him and stuff. So I, I got to know him throughout the process of the film. And it's been great moving back to Nashville and, you know, coming home to journey with him and he's of, sitting there, yeah. you know, like, bro, this is, this is surreal, you know? But, um, so yeah, I didn't know him before. Uh, I had a previous relationship with the Irwin brothers. They pulled me in on their sports drama, Woodlawn. Um, I story consulted for them and edited the film with Andy and I, uh, I scored about a third of the film. Mm. Okay. So, so we had a really good working relationship and they just turned right around and offered me, um, basically a salaried position to work all the way through. I can only imagine. Mm. Um, I'm proud of, I can only imagine because I think it's very wide. I think it handles faith in a way that I would prefer it be handled. And so, there's a scene uh, that is so important, and I can't believe the Irwin brothers left this in the movie because it was so gutsy. And, and you know, they have a base of these people sure. who follow them, and you know, they have they have pressures, you know, to yep. to create a certain type of content. And um, but the scene that they left in that to me moves me is. Uh, Bart's father had had this conversion experience and he'd made his peace with God, but he's trying to restore his relationship with his son and his son rejects him and says, I can't forgive you. Mm. You know, I can't. And up to this point, we've seen the father struggle with being unable to regulate his anger. He, he goes off on these crazy, you know, right. Beats his kid up and Mm -hmm. smashes stuff and everything. So what does he do when his son rejects him? He goes out with a ball bat and smashes this car. And to me, that is the that is the direction Christian film should go. Yeah. He didn't magically not have any anger. Exactly. Issues, yeah. But he had peace with God, and he was still going to struggle and fail in his practice. But he was going to get up and reengage with his higher power, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. um, and not turn that anger on his kid anymore. Yeah. So he had, he did have a change, but he still had a struggle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I felt like that was such a mature scene to leave in the movie. And, um, I love the icon of, you know, Bart kind of building things out of junk and, and the redemption of them, you know, building the car. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was some stuff that I brought to, you know, to the, the, um, to the story and I just I was really appreciative that they left it in um, yeah for sure and it, it moves me man because the the stuff that I wrote for the film I have a good relationship with my dad and so that stuff didn't connect mm-hmm. as much as I was writing but stuff that did write that that did that did connect with me was Bart's grudges and his unwillingness to forgive mm-hmm. and that he realized he needed to forgive even though it was hard and man tears rolling down my face during the writing those scenes because that was real life you know you have kind of this this guy that wants to make amends and you have this christian bible kid that can't forgive yeah 
But you got 20 years of stuff to forgive. It's hard to forgive in a moment. Yes. But to show that in film instead of, I forgive you, Dad. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's like, he can't do it. Yeah. You know, so anyway, there was some very, I think what makes the faith work in it for me is it just felt very real. It felt Mm -hmm. very down to earth. It felt very respectful of Bart and Arthur's real experience on the earth and their real struggles and that we're human and that we're not showing you the perfect spiritual way to be. We're showing you how it really went down and mm-hmm. it was messy. And so well, what it so, looks like to be human. Yeah. Yeah. So, man, I applaud the, I applaud, I mean, they're the Irwin's man. They're the kind of leaders in the space and I applaud them for taking a, a more, honest look mm-hmm. at spirituality in that yeah. film and it was it was an honor to be a part of it that's I think that's awesome. one of the reasons why it went so wide it didn't beat you over the head yeah um, a lot of it was implied mm-hmm. um, was well, telling a real story yeah yeah and then the stuff I felt like that was over the top that you know was the obligatory stuff that a lot of that that was shot got cut out in the mm-hmm. edit and I was very pleased you know that they went that direction that's cool so so I'm very proud to have worked on that film. Um, I think, I think um, you know, the other part of the Christian space that I really struggle with is the culture wars and the politics that people bring into it. And so one of the big things is like Hollywood is the devil and L.A. Mm-hmm. is the great Satan right. and they're poisoning your children and all that stuff and they're godless and they're all atheists and da 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 You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's not true. So no, it's not. The, the god of Hollywood is not Satan; it's the dollar. Yeah, and that and should, all of business, by the way. That's right. And so once you do that, um, man, I I I can tell you, man, I've been in some bad meetings, just heard bad stuff. Like, don't think it's any different in the Christian film space. It's probably a little bit worse, and it makes me very sad. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but the god is the dollar of this mm-hmm. stuff. I mean, when you got millions and millions of dollars on the line, everyone is neurotic and sure. gets a little crazy, but, um, don't always bring our best selves to those conversations. Yeah. But don't call Hollywood Satan. Don't right. call them all atheists. They're just, right. they're, they're chasing the dollar yeah. and the Christian film business and the Christian music business has been doing that for decades, you know? So, I don't really see what the big kerfuffle is there. Everybody's doing the same thing. And so, you know, for me, L.A. and Hollywood are taking notice that these movies are doing such big numbers. Mm -hmm. And they're not opposed to the gospel. They're just pro-dollar. So like, oh, well, oh, faith, that faith-based movie made $85 million. Uh, Maybe we should look into that. Yeah, (laughs) which I feel like is what's happening right now. So yeah, I always make fun of people. It's like if some, which probably wouldn't happen because no one's good enough in the space to make to do it yet. Mm -hmm. But if someone's winning their Oscar, they would be like, um, you know, some Christian filmmakers win their Oscar and they're like, uh, you know, man, Hollywood. All these Satanists, man, we really showed them, man. Thank you for all your support and for standing up for Jesus and this godless culture. You know, take that, Hollywood. And also, I'd like to thank the studio for championing yeah. our yeah. movie. Oh, well, yeah. uh, you guys are so great. You yeah, know, that. Susan and accounting and all you guys are just so great. Thank yeah. you yeah. so much. Well, also, just, that can never happen because all the people they're calling Satanists are the people that vote. Exactly. So yeah. that's that's just what makes me laugh. I used to be so mad about it. I just was just so angry and just incensed and be like, these idiots you know but but now it's just funny to me but i just hope people wake up and see yeah like the contradiction of it and just how silly it is it's like 
if you want to make faith films, make them kick ass, you know, as hard as they possibly can, mm -hmm. then people will notice. And so yeah, totally. yeah, that's the one thing I loved about the Irwins. Um, and there was no, I mean, they, there's not many people in the space that have high quality filmmaking as a value target. So sure. like, these guys want to make Hollywood quality stuff and that's why I could roll with them, you know, on the films that I did with them. So I'm appreciative of that because it's kind of low hanging fruit to set this straw man up and knock it down. It's like, well, the great Satan is stopping our right. movie from, it's like, yeah. no man, you just made a pile of crap movie and nobody <laughs> wants to see it. Yeah, you know I mean? They got yeah. a 17 on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, because the Satanists in Hollywood <laughs> are trying to kill my movie. No man, it's bad. You know? <laughs> Which I would venture to say there would be no Christian filmmakers or film industry if not for Hollywood. Yeah, man, that's my thing It's like, I'm excited. I'm excited for where it's going. I think there are some talented kids, talented people, men and women, that want to do higher caliber stuff in the space. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we're right at this cool level where it could happen. Mm. Um, but every major studio is looking at a faith wing component because yeah, yeah. Of, because of where we're at at this moment in time and this kind of you know, this surge of these films that are tipping at a certain quality level where Hollywood can get behind mm -hmm. it and be like, oh yeah, those guys, they did a good job. Yeah. It got a it got a a, a tomato on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, yeah. how about that? A Christian film. That? There you go. Didn't get a splat. You know? Fresh. So, yeah. yeah, certified fresh, Rotten Tomatoes. So, you know, I think to me, if you're thinking about being in the Christian film space, um, avoid the easy culture war stuff. Just make good art. Yeah, that's good. And you'll break through because um, a lot of these people, that's their whole mantra. And mm -hmm. like that's what they're telling themselves in the mirror of why, you know, there's so much resistance against their film. It's like, and the other thing that happens too in Christian filmmaking, and, and this is my other high horse, is someone gets a mission from God, they get an imperative from God, oh, I'm a Christian filmmaker now, and they go out and they get all their friends together and they make this horrible thing because they haven't, they don't approach the craft with humility. I mean, to just be basically functional, you'd have to give at least two years of your life full time to film craft, even understand what it is. And that's mm -hmm. if you're good. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're struggling and you need to, you know, spend more time, I mean, at the very least you'd have to give two years of your life full time. So these guys that grab a camcorder and don't even know lighting, they don't even know what they're making. They can't see that they're making basically like a home movie because they're so blinded by, uh, you know, I have this, God told me to make this movie. God, God wrote this script, you know, for me or whatever, you oh, know, yeah. these kind of delusions, yeah. this delusional thing of, you know. Right. Um, and I, I think sometimes that can get you a little crazy. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. And, and cause you to think you can leapfrog over the hard work because you've been given this kind of messianic Joan of Arc directive from God to make this, these movies that are going to yeah. change the world. Mm -hmm. I, and I'm not going to say that you didn't. I'm going to tell you, though, you need to go learn film before you sure. grab your Don't get the cart before the horse. Yeah. yeah, don't grab your handy cam and run out with a fluorescent light bulb, you know, and, and do it. I mean, you got to have some respect. And so, 
that's where I think we're at now is you have the people who do want to do faith films that that a lot of us um, have maybe put in the time to build up enough film craft to yeah yeah to like that makes sense be able to exist in in the industry at yeah. large yeah. compete know. with the secular secular world that are have been yeah. putting out high quality for for a long time yeah 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 I mean like you're you're so right it's it's to me it's very disrespectful to scream all this hatred uh, yeah. uh, you know this this is like it's incredible where this industry has gone. I mean, what people don't understand is cinema is barely 100 years old. Can yeah. you believe that? That's it's crazy. Can you believe what yeah. we're doing in 100 years? I mean, the thousands upon thousands of films that have been made. Yeah. Yeah. So I just, I, I my kids make fun of me, but my church, my sacred space is the theater. And uh-huh. uh, more times than not, tears. You know, yeah. like there's always something that, um, somebody thoughtful is making even in a popcorn film i mean sometimes it just it moves you yeah uh, and so yeah my church definitely is the theater and i meet god in these stories uh on a regular basis and um you know i I, and it doesn't have to be a christian film it just needs Mm -hmm. to be a story that speaks to my little follower heart that i'm trying to have and most stories can do that they can speak to your heart so totally i struggle with the with you know, I, I guess you guys can tell on this podcast, but uh, <laughs> I struggle with those labels, and I wish yeah. those lines were a little more blurry. They are to me because again, some of the greatest faith, you know, for instance, the Green Mile. The Green Mile is Stephen King uh, retelling the Christ story in a in his way, and uh-huh. so if you break it down, and this would be a fun one. This would be a fun exercise for everyone listening. If you want to read film as text. Think about a, a secular horror writer who thinks, hey, I'm going to write a retelling of the Jesus story, and I want to do it on a death row inmate block. And where do we go from there? And literally, John Coffey, JC, uh, he oh, heals. I've never thought of it that he way. He is without um, sin. Watching that again. Yeah. Watch it. It's Jesus Christ, man. It's Jesus. It's the story of Jesus. And, and then he mix, mixes in all the mythology of the Roman centurion who's cursed to walk the earth and immortal because oh, he yeah. crucified Christ. So, oh, wow. again, it's... Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's Stephen King's... Was right. that Robert Zemeckis right. directed? No, that was... Um, oh, gosh. Oh, no. Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah, that guy. Oh, no. What's his name? He's, Shawshank Redemption is a great script. I, oh, yes. I love it. Oh, One of my man. favorite films of all time. Oh, no. I... This guy is so great, and I cannot yes. remember. Frank Frank Darabont. Yes. Yeah. Good job. Yes. So yeah, Frank Darabont. One of the creators of The Walking Dead. That's correct. Yeah. He he treated the material with such beauty, and I don't know, man. It just oh, dude. <laughs> you know it. it that's the stuff that's refreshing to me because you, I have Stephen King, who's not a Christian, who's telling a Christian story, and mm-hmm. and there was something that and can see the beauty me. in in that telling. He brought of that out story. he brought out so much Christian beauty. You stack up all the Christian films that have been made, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. you'd be hard pressed to right. equal that. And so that energy, you know, there is a Christ energy in that film. Um, and it comes from Stephen King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. And, and so 
I would take the Green Mile any day. You know, so like I guess that's what I'm saying is is if you can free your mind a little bit to think to ask yourself what is a faith film. Well, mm-hmm. The Green Mile is for me for sure. You know, so cool. Awesome. Well, man, as we're wrapping up, because I know you got to go to a wedding and a couple states away. Yes. Uh, there's a question we like to ask all all of the people that, that sit here with us, and thank you so much for just yeah, your man, for sure. it's been conversation. Great. It's oh, been so awesome. So great to hang out. But what are some things right now that are giving you life? Wow, that's a great question. That's a great question. I lost myself out there a little bit, grinding really hard I'm in my mid 40s now and I'm feeling that call to get back to balance Mm. so I've recently moved out in the country with my family and the things that give me life are dumb stupid things like digging leaves out of my spring that stopped up or taking care of a sick goat I had a goat fall in a water trough yesterday and she almost froze to death and pulling her out and putting warm blankets over her and getting her feeling mm-hmm. good again. You're being a shepherd. Yeah, I'm back to the land, back to slowing down, back to listening. It's um, interesting you say that because my mind. when I've talked to you a couple of times about your property and things like that, I totally sense you like having a connection out there somehow. Yeah. Yeah, and then the, I think the other thing too is um, – letting go of past hurts and wounds Mm. and letting Mm. go of toxic stories where Mm -hmm. you're the victim. So that's been giving me a lot of life. And that's a continuing to unravel story. Um, And that's helping me so much. Um, uh, Spending time with Kim and my kids, spending time mentoring others, Mm. raising them up because I didn't feel like I had a strong mentor in film I did in music but I didn't in film and it's really hard to get started so I've been trying to help some people That's get awesome. starts um, and then uh, honestly practicing mindfulness has mm-hmm. helped me a lot meditation Just, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah stopping it's my great. life yeah and finding the gratitude that I owe mm-hmm. that you when you're too busy, you don't have time for yeah. So I've definitely become a more grateful person. And life and all of his ups and downs and fluctuations and little successes and triumphs, but also many, many failures, it really has humbled me. And, and I, like, I like this quieter, more humble, observational life that I've fallen into. Yeah. Um, I just observe a lot more and I'm slower to speak and that mm. gives me life as well. But I think, I think, uh, the last thing I would say is trying to cultivate more empathy and compassion mm. for everyone because everyone's fighting battles, man. And mm. I'm not walking in their shoes, but I mm. know like some of the deep battles I've fought with my career, even stuff that's happened in my family, um, stuff with my health, it deepens you. Yeah. And when it deepens you, that depth of feeling and empathy and compassion can spill out to others. Yeah. And I'm trying to... Live. And it gives you more space to take yeah. in others. Yeah. I'm trying to live in that and have that That's available good. for 
other people around. That's me. awesome, man. It's great, man. Well, thanks so much for for sharing Thank you, man. sharing your story man. with us. It's great to be here. here. Thank you for the invite, man. This is super cool. I uh, I saw it. you guys interviewed Bart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. well it's been great. Hanging cool. out with you guys. Thank you for the invite. Thanks so much. And thank you guys for listening to another episode of Idiopod. Check us out for all things Idiopod, idiopod.com. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.